This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in Counselor Education and Supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of Vera Pratt? Another question here is, what is psychic fraud? Vera Pratt was born in New York City on February 13, 1935. She was the great-granddaughter of Charles Pratt, who was a partner at John D. Rockefeller's Standard Oil Company. Vera had a trust worth millions of dollars. Growing up, she took an interest in painting, pottery, and singing. Her family had a farm, and she developed an appreciation for gardening and the outdoors. She went to college and earned a degree in landscape architecture. Later, she would earn a degree from the Harvard Graduate School of Design. Vera was not able to find a suitable love interest in her life. She pursued a few married men and some other men who were not available. She lost confidence in her ability to attract a mate, and she experienced loneliness. Vera was very generous. She supported a number of charities throughout her life. In 2006, Vera moved from Washington, D.C. to Martha's Vineyard. She purchased a 3,000-square-foot house in Chilmark for $2 million. She was determined to spend her remaining years engaging in activities that she enjoyed, like meditation, painting landscapes, canning food, and tending to her garden. She still held out some hope that she would meet a man as well. At some point, perhaps prior to her move, Vera started having concerns about demons. Specifically, she came to believe that a demon had entered her body and was stuck near her right shoulder blade. She believed the demons disrupted her cell phone signal, broke her pellet stove, and erased her emails. So, tech-savvy shoulder demons. Vera somehow found an ad for a psychic in Florida who called herself Psychic Angela. In reality, her name was Sally Ann Johnson. She had a few other names as well. Angela Johnson, Angelina Johnson, and Sally Reed. It appears as though she had an affinity for aliases. Sally claimed to be a psychic with 20 years of experience helping corporate executives and dignitaries achieve happiness and organize their lives. Even though she was only in her early 30s, she had plenty of time to learn her trade, considering she dropped out of school in the second grade. After they talked on the phone, Vera felt as though Sally could really help her. Vera started paying Sally to help specifically with the demons. Sally claimed that she spent hours engaging in prayer and meditation in order to keep the demons away for Vera. So Sally was praying, and that was helping Vera keep distance from these demons. Sally claimed that she was giving up family time and working late into the night with all this prayer. Sally gave Vera advice on where to place crystals to get the most negative energy repellent value. She claimed that she could sense from a distance what was going on in Vera's life. The pair would communicate not only on the phone, but through email. Sally even traveled to Martha's Vineyard a few times. She apparently stayed in a nice hotel on a few of those occasions. Vera gave Sally a lot of personal information, including details about her desire to find a man and her digestion habits. Despite making little or no progress with these so-called psychic treatments, Vera had faith 
that Sally was the one who could take care of those demons. Over time, Sally started to exert a lot of influence over Vera. Family members who had once communicated with Vera regularly were now barely talking to her, not because they didn't want to, but because Vera was cutting them off. One of Vera's friends noticed that Vera didn't talk much about anything except Sally and the demons. Her personality also appeared to change. Some wondered if she had dementia. Family members became increasingly worried that Vera was vulnerable and that Sally was taking advantage of her. They knew that Vera had a history of being exploited by psychics. When her family confronted her, Vera insisted that Sally was helping and she didn't mind giving her money. I imagine Sally didn't mind either. It was suspected that Sally was starting to control Vera. Vera was told not to give money to anyone else because doing that would generate negative energy. What would not generate negative energy was giving money to Sally. That was still greatly encouraged and occurred frequently. Sally gave instructions to Vera to send wire transfers to multiple bank accounts, which were under several different names. Sally was even able to get her name added to Vera's American Express credit card. Sally was not shy about using this card. She spent at least $20,000 just on jewelry and entertainment. It's hard being a psychic if you don't look flashy and you're not happy. Sally was living in a 3,200-square-foot condo in Aventura, Florida. It cost half a million dollars. She had a residence in New York City. She drove a Porsche SUV. And she had the finest shoes and handbags. In Vera's attempt to eradicate a non-existent demon from her shoulder, she ended up inviting a real demon into her bank account. Vera continued to pay Sally for these psychic services, but Vera was growing somewhat concerned because she was running out of money. She wrote in her diary that the demon eradication payments Sally was asking for were too much. Even still, the relationship continued. Vera was concerned that if she cut Sally off, the demons would return. Vera kept following Sally's instructions to keep the demons at bay. For example, imagining the color pink coming in and out of her body, fasting, praying for 30 minutes before eating in the morning, and spending time with crystals. In late 2013, Vera asked her goddaughter for assistance in paying her electric bill. Her goddaughter called the police because it didn't make sense to her that Vera would be out of money. A detective started investigating and spoke with Vera. He couldn't seem to get a straight answer from Vera about how much she had paid to Sally. At one point, Vera said it may have been around $15,000 over the last five years. The detective confronted Sally during one of Sally's visits to Martha's Vineyard. He expected Sally to be intimidated, but she was rude and hostile. Telling the detective that the amount of money she was charging Vera was none of his business. Right after that confrontation, Sally took a number of interesting steps. She instructed Vera not to talk to the police. She produced a letter signed by Vera indicating that any money which had been paid to Sally was actually a gift. It was signed the same day that Sally had that confrontation with the detective. The letter also attempted to grant Sally power of attorney. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, 
maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. Eventually, Vera's family was able to intervene. They hired a former police chief named Beth Toomey to care for Vera. Toomey moved in with Vera. Sally spoke on the phone with Toomey and tried to find out when Vera was going to be alone at the house. Sally just kept calling repeatedly. Eventually, Toomey was able to get a harassment prevention order. The relationship between Sally and Vera was finally over. Vera moved into an assisted living facility not long after this. Her mental health status had deteriorated. From 2007 to 2014, Vera had paid Sally three and a half million dollars. The detective wanted to arrest Sally Ann Johnson, but building a case for psychic fraud is actually pretty difficult. With a few exceptions, people are allowed to pay another person for anything. It doesn't even have to be real. That doesn't mean that Sally was in the clear. The FBI found out that she failed to pay $725,000 in taxes to the IRS. They charged her with tax evasion in August of 2017. On October 7, 2017, Sally Ann Johnson pleaded guilty to interfering with the administration of the internal revenue laws. She denied taking advantage of Vera. Sally was sentenced to 26 months in prison. She was ordered to pay her tax liability and $3.5 million to Vera. Vera Pratt would die on February 8, 2018, at the age of 82. As of the summer of 2021, Sally Ann Johnson was out of prison but unable to find a job. She had only paid $38,000 of her restitution. She is only required to pay $25 a month. Now moving to my analysis. Prior to her involvement with Sally Ann Johnson, 
Vera Pratt appeared to be very high in openness to experience, and therefore vulnerable to magical thinking. She believed that she could be mildly psychic, was interested in Eastern philosophies, and alternative medicine. At some point, she started believing that demons were inside her body. This may have been simply an extension of her beliefs, or could have been symptoms of a disorder like dementia. As I understand it, Vera found Sally. So Sally didn't seek Vera out. Vera wanted a psychic and located her. Sally operated several different psychic businesses and, of course, had multiple aliases. Sally was a self-proclaimed spiritual consultant who offered services like meditation, healing, and spiritual cleansing and strengthening. Other common names for spiritual consultants would be psychics, clairvoyants, fortune tellers, and spiritual advisors. This case appears to involve fraud. Therefore, it is surprising that Sally was only convicted in connection with tax evasion. She was ordered to pay back the money she received from Vera. Perhaps that was part of the plea deal. As I mentioned, psychic fraud is not always easy to prosecute. Sometimes it's treated as a civil matter and not a criminal matter. There are people who argue both sides of this issue. On one side, people defend psychics in one of two ways. First, by saying that psychics are covered under religious freedom, they are allowed to charge for their services just like any other service connected to spiritual or religious belief. Second, by saying that psychics simply provide entertainment. On the other side, people argue psychics who charge excessively for services are actually committing fraud because they are not really providing any service at all. Even if certain fees could be excused as appropriate under religious or entertainment services, how can someone justify charging $3.5 million over seven years? When looking at these arguments, I think it's difficult to justify the idea of psychics charging consumers for services. What qualifies somebody as a psychic? How can a consumer differentiate a real psychic from a fake psychic when their behavior is 100% identical? I think one could make a good argument that they are all fake. What counts as a legitimate business? If somebody is offering a service that does not exist, can that be legitimate? Is that even covered under the entertainment exception? When looking at the specific services that psychics offer, or pretend to offer, I think they run into more problems with the law. For example, we see a number of unrealistic claims made by psychics, like they can cure cancer, they can help people win the lottery. If they could really do this, why wouldn't they do it for themselves? They can reunite a consumer with a lost love, and of course, they can get rid of demons. At what point does this become theft by false pretenses? The only legitimate psychics are those who promise nothing which coincidentally is how much their services are worth. Even in the area of entertainment value, their worth is very limited. Unless somebody is highly entertained by handing their money to another person and getting absolutely nothing in return. Now moving to my final thoughts. The dynamics of a psychic-based scam or psychic fraud are particularly difficult to detect and terminate. The effects can be devastating. There are many aspects of the Vera Pratt case exemplify this. Vera perceived an urgent need. She thought she was possessed by demons. Vera was the one who contacted Sally. Money was changing hands just between two people. Vera was in a compromised state and was easy to manipulate, especially for someone who appeared to be highly manipulative. 
Sally reduced scrutiny by cutting Vera off from support. There is no way to prove when the task Sally was hired to achieve was completed. No one can prove or disprove the existence of demons. This resulted in an open-ended situation where Sally could have kept charging for as long as Vera lived. Sally was a particularly bold perpetrator. She argued with the police, told Vera not to talk to the police, didn't bother to pay taxes, and lived a lavish lifestyle. It's worrisome to think that there are people like Sally Ann Johnson out there, people who are all too eager to take advantage of a woman in a vulnerable state. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. Did you guys hear about that couple that went on vacation and one spouse murdered the other? In fact, the entire vacation was planned just so that they could make the murder look like an accident. Ah, so like a slaycation. Oh boy, sounds like a fun new true crime podcast to me. On every episode of Slaycation, we'll examine true cases of people who were killed while on vacation. Was it murder? Or just a horrible accident? That's up to you and the law to decide. But either way, if you leave for your vacation in the plane and come home under the plane, you've definitely gone on a slaycation. Join us every week for a fascinating new episode. 911, what's your emergency? But make sure to pack your body bags because getting away can be murder. This is Slaycation. Slaycation.